Open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. I have read some of this chapter to you not too long ago, but I would like to use it as a springboard into considering spiritual adultery this morning. It's a subject from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Whenever we choose to love anything else or to be concerned with anything else but the Lord our God, he considers it spiritual adultery and likens it, compares it to a husband in this world with a wife dedicated and committed to selling herself to other men, except he makes it a whole lot worse than that in this chapter and other chapters like this. I'm not going to read this whole chapter to you, but I want to read the first 15 verses. As I gave you this chapter to read some time ago, this is an excellent chapter to read and meditate upon how the Lord perceives our interest in anything else but Him. No prude can go into the book of Ezekiel and come out alive if they read with any understanding. The Lord God is incredibly graphic and descriptive in describing an incredibly lewd, wicked, profane whore in chapters 16 and 23 in particular. Although uh, prudes could probably get through the chapter and not even know what's being talked about. But listen, this is the real world described so that we would humble ourselves before our God and realize that we have not loved him as we should. And that's the whole purpose of this day. That we would be provoked to love the Lord Jesus Christ as a bride ought to love him, and that we would tremble before him, lest we depart from him and face his jealous wrath, because he is a jealous God and a jealous husband. Let me read to you the first 15 verses of Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live. Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with embroidered work, and shod thee with badger's skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen, and silk, and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour, and honey, and oil. 
and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playest the harlot because of thy renown, and pouredst out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If I were to continue on, the prophet would take us down into the depths of the degradation of a lewd woman as she takes all that the Lord God had given her and turns it to serve other gods and other nations. The picture here is a picture of a helpless, forsaken, unloved, dying individual, which is true of us as well as it was of Israel. The prophet says here that Israel's parents were a Amorite and a Hittite because when you look at the biological descent of Israel, they were no different than the Canaanites. There was no biological superiority. There was no natural superiority. They were just like those pagan nations that inhabited the land of Israel. But God chose them. He says it was the time of love when he spotted her. And he took her and he said, live. And it's not just a sovereign live of a command to live, but it's a live of love. It's the request, don't die because I want you. And he chose that baby that was not swaddled, nor loved, nor salted, nor taken care of at all to be his bride. And he put his comeliness on her. He made her beautiful. He gave her everything she had never imagined, nor had any right to have. He gave her all those things, and her beauty went forth before all nations. And God did raise up Israel to be the jewel of the earth. And what was she before? A bunch of nomad shepherds that didn't even own one square foot of ground in the land of Palestine. And he raised them up to be the jewel of the earth when they were serving him. But then they turned and committed fornication, as this 15th verse states, Thou didst trust in thine own beauty. And brethren, New Testament churches can trust in their own beauty just as fast as Israel trusted in hers. I read over there about the church at Laodicea that she thought she was rich and she thought she was beautiful. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to her, Thou art ugly and naked and poor. You need me to clothe you because without me you are nothing. This is a theme throughout the whole Bible that God has chosen his people. And when his people get haughty and forget him, it is the same as committing adultery against the Lord God. Whatever that conjures up in the minds of men in particular. Because women do not own their husbands, but men own their wives. There is an enormous difference in the Bible. And that's why it is always coming from the angle of a husband about a treacherous wife when it's the Lord, when it's comparing the Lord to a treacherous church. And so we have it here. Let that conjure up in your minds whatever hateful feelings you have towards such a diabolical, treacherous, wicked event, an adulterous break of a marriage. And that is how the Lord describes us when we get interested in the things of this world and leave him. This is what describes Israel going after other gods. This is Israel inventing modifications to the worship of God. They're guilty of spiritual adultery. It would take a couple of weeks to go through Ezekiel 16, verse by verse, and try to give you a sense of it from an Old Testament standpoint and a sense of it from a New Testament standpoint. I believe that most of you will be capable of doing that after today. So I want to encourage you to read the whole of Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23 and see what God thinks about his people when they sin against him. But I want to move on. I want us now to come to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. What I just read to you from Ezekiel 16 are some of the most tender words in all the Bible. Those first 14 verses describing God's affection and his care and his love and his dealings with Israel 
adorning them and setting them up and loving them, saying that it was the time of love. I was in love with you. I fell in love with you. I put my skirt over you. I raised you up, and then you turned against me and betrayed me and betrayed me and betrayed me. And we'll come back to look at that chapter throughout today, but I hope that you can read it with understanding as to what it says to you about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How much have you betrayed him? Now let's come all the way into the New Testament. We're not dealing with Israel. We're dealing with saints of the New Covenant. Right. And I come to James chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now, was the whole, were all the saints, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, that James was writing to, were they all guilty of adultery? Were they all breaking their marriages? No. That is not at all what he has under consideration. Not at all, not 10%, not 1%. His entire thought is infatuation with the world. James 4.4, 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. That is what he's dealing with. That is not literal adultery. That is spiritual adultery, and it's taught to us in the New Testament. Don't you people know that I'm writing to that your infatuation with the world, your interest in the world, your efforts to chase the things of this world, they are spiritual adultery, and they make you my enemies. You have chosen to be my enemy by loving something that is totally contrary to me. So you can't love God and the world. That's why when you hear me say there is no such thing as a successful Christian businessman, that is what I mean. You cannot serve both masters. If God makes a Christian rich, that is his choice. But if a Christian ever sets as his goal to be a successful Christian businessman or a rich Christian businessman, those are incompatible, and that is spiritual adultery to even think the thought. They're impossible. He that will be rich falls into many foolish and hurtful lusts. It's contrary to God. Right. He wants us to be content with what he's already given us in a spiritual way. This right here is a, such a powerful statement of the New Testament, addressing his hearers as adulterers and adulteresses because of their friendship with the world. How friendly are you with the world? Now think. I can't stop on every single verse and every single sentence and remind you of our theme today. Do you know what this means? This is a husband asking his wife, why are you so friendly with so-and-so? You're not that friendly with me. Why are you friendly with him? We're opposites. We're enemies. I can't stand him. And you're being so friendly with him. Why are you flirting with that man all the time? Why do I catch you flirting with him so much? That is what the Lord's saying to us in James 4.4. 4. Friendship with the world, our flirting with the world, is setting ourselves in enmity against God because that world is his enemy. And when we choose to get enamored with it and want to inch over toward it and show it some of our affection and let our minds wander and dwell mostly on that world, we become the enemies of God because we are befriending his enemy. We're flirting with his enemy. Where are you flirting with the world? This is a warning from the, from the Lord God himself and from the word of God to each of you. If you like the world and you want to play with the world, you are his enemies. You don't show signs of ever having been his child. You don't show signs of being his bride. And if you are, if you are perchance by the grace of God, his bride, but you are loving the world, he is going to come in fury and jealousy to punish you for flirting with his enemy. Can you imagine, men, you have a serious enemy that is totally contrary to you in every aspect of your thought and deeds and whole life, which is the world against God, and you keep catching your wife flirting and befriending your enemy? What would that do to your souls? Well, that is what the Lord is saying. When you're friends with the world, you choose to be my enemy because that is my enemy, and you're over there flirting with that. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. 
Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you're going to befriend the world and be more interested in your job, your career, your family, your marriage, your job, whatever it is, bodily exercise, whatever little flirting thing that you have that gets you all excited, every time you let that get out of its proper place in your life, you're committing adultery against God. Right. You've become his enemy, and you've set yourself to be his enemy by getting infatuated with the dumbest little things, because everything I just listed is incredibly stupid in comparison to him. But we're all tempted that way, aren't we? Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Do you think the scripture in all of its discussion about the heart of man and the lusts that are in man is speaking in vain? Do you think it's worthless talk when the Bible tells us that we have a soul that lusts after the things of this world? No, it is not saying that in vain because that is a true fact of our condition. We are tempted to that ugly enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what if he was here? That enemy would crucify him again. And yet we go over, tiptoeing over to the world, wanting to whisper in its ear and have it whisper in our ear. And that can be anything. That can be the love of family. It can be the love of marriage. It can be the love of success, money, job, house, car, bodily exercise, your looks. Any of those things are sneaking over the world to want them to whisper into your ear. And you want to give them some of your affection. And the Lord God is highly offended against that. but he giveth more grace. There's more than enough grace coming from our husband if we want to love him, for him to help us love him and to keep us. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Do you know how he wants us to come back home to him? Humble. Every man in here. Many times did he forgive them. Many times. How would you want her to come back? Again, I'm trying to chase... And, and you women are going to have to think about it the best you can. It does not fit. You're a woman. You, you are. It's different than a man. It's different. And if you don't understand that, see me afterwards. Write me an email because I'll be happy to explain that to you. That the man is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And you owe your faithfulness to your husband. Your husband doesn't owe his faithfulness to you. He owes his faithfulness to the Lord. It's a different kind of a relationship. That is why all the safeguards in the Old Testament were to protect the husband's interest, not the wife's interest, ever. And there's five different safeguards in the Old Testament, which you're going to have to go research if you want to be reminded of this point, that God protects husbands, not wives, in the same way, because the relationship is different. Because we want to get the relationship of a husband over a wife, because that's the one the Lord keeps referring to, is his, to the church. But what we read about right here is how do we come back and be forgiven when we have committed adultery by befriending the world? We humble ourselves. We get down and say we were wrong. We don't come saying, you've got to allow some of that, or what do you expect? I mean, it's rather attractive out here. We've got to come back humbly, casting off all of that stuff. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. The Lord will draw himself back to those that forsake him if they draw nigh to him. Right. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Get rid of all, that, all those activities that we were involved in that were in friendliness with the world, unnecessarily so. All of our unnecessary activities with the world where we're getting infatuated, cleanse our hands and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You cannot serve the Lord and mammon. You can't love in two directions when they're contrary to each other. So purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Get your hearts only toward the Lord. And do you know what this is? Do you know how often do we have to do this? Daily. Daily. This is our daily struggle to be a good wife to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Daily. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. This is how a husband would want his wife coming to the door, isn't it? Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your, should she be laughing? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And what does it say? He shall lift you up. 
he'll reach down and lift you up and embrace you, and you'll be back together again. And that's this passage quickly run over in James chapter 4. There it is. I gave you a number of chapters to read in preparation, and I hope that you've read those. Remember, it was a few weeks ago that I preached to you about delighting in the Lord and in his son, Jesus Christ. All of this fits together if you will have a spiritual mind about it. Delighting in the Lord is being a bride that finds pleasure in her husband, and a husband loves to have his wife delight in him. And the Lord loves to have us delight in him. He loves it. That's why the Bible is filled with praise ye the Lord. What do you think that is there for? Because as a husband, he wants to be praised. He wants to be told that he's the best. He doesn't want to give his glory to anything else. He wants us to make a joyful noise to him. He wants us to sing and to praise him. And so I preach to you about delighting in the Lord because that is what the Lord is looking for, is a wife, a spouse, a church, and saints that will love him and adore him like the perfect woman would. May we be that woman as a church and as individuals. So I preach that. Then I recently I preached to you a couple of weeks ago when we had the Lord's Supper about delighting in the life and in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's getting even more personal, about loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we considered his death for us in every aspect that we could in order to provoke our affection for him and what he did for us. Because do you know what he wants us to do? This do in remembrance of me. He wants that death for us remembered. And yet, how often do we remember it? He wants us to remember what he paid for us. What did he pay for Israel? Do you know what the redemption price of Israel was? The ravaged nation of Egypt. That was the purchase price. It's, it said that 50 times in the Old Testament. I redeemed you with the cost of Egypt. I sacrificed them so that you could be free. I took all their gold and gave it to you. I killed all their firstborn so your firstborn could leave. That was the redemption price. But what's the redemption price for us? The blood of our husband. The blood of our husband. We were condemned to death, and he shed his own blood in order to marry us. I've preached on that before, but that's, that's beyond description, isn't it? Yeah. I say the words, you hear the words, and they're just noises coming out of my mouth and into your ear unless the Spirit of God blesses you to fully grasp them. Right. I preached to you last Sunday about the magnificent and awesome will of our sovereign God. Right. And for him to exercise that will on our behalf and to choose us out of a sinful, rebellious generation of people to be his own, that is a gift and, a, and grace that we ought to be returning forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so all of this fits together. I hope you can see that. There is no simpler and there isn't a better way to provoke our repentance and to provoke our affection toward the Lord Jesus Christ than to compare it to a marriage. And that's why it's so thoroughly in the Bible. We are all wives today, even husbands. We are all wives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we the kind of wife we should be in loving him who first loved us when we were so unlovable, when he has done all that he has done for us, do we love him as we should? And this theme throughout the Bible is how the Lord looks at it and how he expects us to look at it. So may we learn from it and ask ourselves, do we love the Lord Jesus Christ as we should? Right. Did you see the second verse of, sec of Ezekiel chapter 16? Here's what it said. Son of man... That's Ezekiel the prophet, and that's the Lord to me. Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. My purpose is simple, to remind you that playing with the world is an abomination to God. Playing with the world, being a friend of the world, as James 4.4 4 put it, is to commit adultery against the Lord Jesus Christ. Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. So how do we really get the point across? Now, this is the Lord and his preachers talking. How do we really get the point across? Well, I'm going to inspire Ezekiel 16, and I'm going to inspire Ezekiel 23 for you. They're going to be grosser and more lewd and more base than anything else in the Bible. But I hope that by writing that way, you might get a little tiny picture of what it's like when you get interested in anything else but me. Amen. Son of man caused Jerusalem to know her abominations. And so we know it 
by looking at a very, very lewd wife. And we compare that to how we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that prophets are to hew their people by the word of God. That's H-E-W, which means to slash and to cut into pieces with the word of God. And so we want to ask ourselves and be hewed by the word of God today. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I his best? Do I love him more than others? Am I faithful? Do I love him more than I love others? And do I love him more than others love him? We want to ask ourselves both. Why would we want to settle to be average? Who wants to be the best bride in here for the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that some of you are eager to be that. Amen. Let's come in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is compared to a marriage. So I want, I want to establish that. I want, you to, I want you to know that that's a Bible principle. It's first dealt with plainly in Exodus, and it runs all the way to the book of the Revelation. In Revelation, a church that decided to bring in a few elements of the world into its worship, what is she called in the book of Revelation? The great whore. And she's covered, and she has a cup full of the filthiness of her fornications. She is an incredibly lascivious and lewd woman, and it is a church. That's why John stood there in great admiration. He couldn't believe what he was seeing, that a church that called itself a Christian church, a church that said it was a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, was a great whore with a golden cup full of the filthiness of her fornications. That's a church. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at this verse, 32. Ephesians 5, 32. This is a great mystery. This is a great mystery. Now, is there anything mysterious about a man and a wife getting married? Not a thing at all. There might be the sentimental types that think that there is something mysterious, something at a spiritual level about a marriage, but there isn't. Marriage is two people choosing to be life partners and companions. That includes the marriage bed. It includes the kitchen table. That is not the mystery. There is no mystery in that at all. Man was made one way and a woman was made another way and the two of them can become, in a certain way of the words, one flesh. But there's no mystery about it at all. There's no marriage in heaven. Marriage is too carnal for, for marriage to exist in heaven. There's only one marriage in heaven and it's the marriage of all of us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Marriage is a carnal relationship. It is not a spiritual relationship other than we do lead about a sister, and so hopefully every marriage is a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ with a sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that makes a Christian marriage. But their relationship to each other is not spiritual as much as it is physical, natural, personal. Our spiritual relationship is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about the fact that you're able to read the Bible with your wife. You can read, your, read the Bible with anyone in here. That is not our relationship. The point I want to make is what these words mean right here. This is a great mystery. He is not talking about marriage. He is talking about the union of Jesus Christ with his people. This is a great mystery. This is something that men would never figure out or know about if it wasn't for divine revelation. Right. And that's all that the word mystery means. Mystery does not mean it is too complex for you to understand. Mystery doesn't mean it's too deep for you to get to. Mystery means that if God hadn't told us about it, we wouldn't know it. Right. And if he hadn't told us, we wouldn't know this. And Paul tells us exactly what he's talking about. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. When I say that there is a mystery in these last 12 verses or so, um, 12 verses of Ephesians 5, I am not talking about natural marriage. I am talking about the relationship of Jesus and his church which is a very close relationship. Jesus loves the church very closely, and we are members of his body. Now that we're getting into a mystery. But he is incomplete without us. We are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He is incomplete without us. God has united us 
into one body, and we shall be one body forever. That is how close we are. We have already come, in a legal sense, into intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And when we are converted, we choose to enter into that intimate, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. So there are phases to our union with Christ. But brethren, there is a day coming in which there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's, there's, not, there's no forks and knives at that thing. That is a picture of us being forever intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the saints will finally be there, and he will sit down, and we will realize the eternal and everlasting aspects of our intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. We will continue to use the word pictures of the book of the Revelation, but we will not get hung up on what kind of china is on the table for the marriage supper of the Lamb, right. because that is not the point. The point is, what will they do after the supper? They will enter into the joy of one another forever and ever, because the consummation of the marriage will take place. That is what the marriage supper of the Lamb is. The consummation of the unity that we have with Jesus being fully realized. You say, tell me more about it. I wish there was ten more chapters in the book of Revelation to tell me more about it. But that's what it's going to be. There's going to be no sickness there, no sadness there, no pain, no death, no dying. There'll be no need of a son there because the lamb's going to be the glory of the place. There's going to be no sinners there. And it's going to be joy and praise forevermore in the presence of our blessed husband. And it doesn't tell us a whole lot beyond that. And it doesn't need to. The only people that want to know more are getting a little too... Generally, generally the people that want to know more are getting tickled with wanting to know how much gold is there, what kind of stones are there, and stuff like that. And they've missed the whole boat. Because all you need to know is the union that God purposed between Jesus and his elect will be fully realized intimately at that supper. And that should be all we want to know. If God says it's a union, and if God said that we are one body and one flesh, and that we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all, do you realize Jesus Christ is incomplete without us because of the way God has put him and the church together? And that's the consummation that we're working toward. But what we want to see here is this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What I want you to realize is that the relationship that Jesus Christ has to his church is used to exhort us to better marriages right. in this particular passage. Marriage is not a type of the church. Oh, that'd be, that would be so pitiful. Do you think your marriage pictures what Jesus has toward the church? Oh, it's disgusting. Marriage is not a type of the church. Jesus Christ's relationship with the church is an exhortation to all marriages. Right. He doesn't say, now the Lord is going to love you like you love your wife. He says, you love your wife like the Lord loves the church. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband like the church, is in subjection to Christ. You know, people get that all messed up and it leads them off to thinking spiritual, ridiculous thoughts about marriage and you say, well, it sounds like a minor point to me. No, get the order straightened out in your mind right. because your marriage does not show Jesus and the church. Right. Jesus loves the church with an everlasting love, will always love them, and will forgive them a thousand times, and you never will. You'll never be anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. But we are depressed to be like that in our practical relationships. The great mystery that we wouldn't know about is how much Jesus Christ loved his church. And we just have read a couple of passages about it that I hope help. The union between Jesus and his church is the whole drama of human history. How that God chose sinners and loved them and united them to his son so that they would enjoy an intimate relationship between his son and those saints forever and ever. You will not be enjoying the relationship with your spouse in heaven. That is almost blasphemy to think about getting excited to see your spouse in heaven unless it is only and entirely to run with that spouse to meet your mutual spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. 
There, there is no marriage in heaven except the marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And he's already espoused us, and we have already agreed to his proposal. But we will have the consummation of it coming, brethren. Do you know when you agreed to his espousal? When you were baptized. Yep. Do you know what you did in baptism? You gave God the answer of a good conscience. You answered the great God who chose you to be the bride of his son. And in a picture reminiscent of what he did to purchase you to be his bride, you were buried in water and you rose again from water to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will follow you and love you and be your devoted wife for the rest of my life. And that is what you said. You said, I will rise from these waters to walk in newness of life because I will no longer be infatuated nor friendly with these enemies over here. I dedicate my life to you and I thank you for what you have done for me and I will follow you for the rest of my life. That's what you did in baptism. That's where you answered his espousal. You know, Psalm 45, my favorite psalm, is nothing but a song, a psalm of love. If you have a Bible with a superscript over it, it says it's a song of love because it's a picture of Jesus Christ and his love for his church. Didn't Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a king that made a great marriage for his son? And so you read in the first seven verses of Matthew 22 about the king making a great marriage for his son, and it's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. My point right now is, throughout the Bible, God wants us to see that his relationship toward us is like a marriage so that we can realize our duty to love him and the fear of offending him. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. That's the Apostle Paul apologizing for the fact that he has to defend himself because there were wicked men in the church at Corinth who wanted to question and despise his authority as an apostle. That's what that first verse means. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. He did indeed have a battle he was fighting against these other teachers at Corinth who thought they were something when they were nothing in comparison to Paul. And he was jealous for those saints because he wanted to keep them from being deceived and deluded and led astray by these false teachers. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Notice that verse. I have espoused you to one husband. Here's the practical phase of our marriage to Christ. Ministers are involved in it. Ministers' jobs are to help churches be faithful wives to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am jealous. I am afraid of other ministers who will teach you away from the things of Christ. They'll, they'll bring another Jesus. They'll bring another gospel. They'll bring another spirit. And if I'm not careful and protect you, you might well bear with them. You might be, that's what the next two verses say, you might be deceived by them. So one of the purposes of the ministry is to save churches from being deluded and deceived into an adulterous spiritual relationship with false doctrine, with false teachers, with another Jesus, with another spirit, with another gospel. And there's Paul stating that very plainly. I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I taught you, Corinthians, I was instrumental in your conversion. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, I begot you through the gospel. I was the one that told you about Jesus Christ, and I am jealous over you, lest you would fall in love with anyone or anything else, even if it be another Jesus. And he goes on to describe these other false teachers as being teachers of the devil. But my point being, this is a whole theme of the Bible. And ministers have a role in it, of trying to provoke you to be those great, that great bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the nature of spiritual adultery. Let's look at the nature of adultery. Let's think about the horrible offense that it is to God. Did any of you read Numbers chapter 5 last night? Numbers 5. I see one family, another family, another. Okay. Numbers 5 was the test of jealousy that God gave Israel. God gave husbands... 
a means by which they could test their jealousy about their wives. If a husband was gone for a few days and came home, and he just didn't trust the affection he was getting from his wife, he was wondering if maybe she was playing around on him, playing the whore, as the Bible describes it. He could take her down to the priest, and the priest would make up a potion, and that woman would have to drink that potion before the Lord. And if she was guilty, she would rot right there on the spot in her genitals. If she wasn't guilty, nothing would happen to her except she would conceive immediately and have a child for that husband. Now the Bible says very plainly it didn't matter whether the woman was guilty or not. The man had no obligation to have any evidence. If he just felt jealous, he could take his wife down to the priest and have her drink that potion. Now that's it. 20 verses in Numbers chapter 5 is in the Bible to help show how jealous husbands can be and how the Lord defended that jealousy to a point because jealousy is part of love. If you have love without jealousy, you don't have love. God certainly doesn't love us that way. He is very jealous. Now that doesn't mean that a husband should be cruel and that a husband who has no grounds to think anything evil of his wife should be thinking evil thoughts all the time because love also believes all things. And when it can't believe all things, it hopes all things. So let's keep the balance there, lest we go to an extreme. That was Numbers 5, a very graphic passage, very serious consequences, but explaining the jealousy of a man. And with that introduction, let's look at the jealousy of God and what he calls us leaving him and our affection for him. Exodus chapter 34. Now I've worked up enough passages on these next couple of points that would take many sermons because there are so many of them. But let's just look at a couple. Exodus 34, I want to begin at verse 10. Please follow with me as I read here. Exodus 34, 10. This is the Lord making a proposal to his wife, to his bride. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. This is the Lord saying, "You, little woman, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do for you. I am going to do stuff for you that you're not going to be able to believe. They're going to be fantastic, terrible things, and everyone else is going to know that you have the greatest husband of all. That's the sense of the words. Right. I'm sorry if you can't grasp that, but help try to grasp it. Let's keep reading. Observe. Now here's the conditions he wants her to keep. Observe that thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice." And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. Now that whole passage is, I'm entering into a marriage with you. The covenant is the covenant of the law of Moses. This is what I will do. This is what I expect you to do. Don't you dare leave any of those nations in the land of Canaan. Get rid of them all. Get rid of their gods because they're going to be a snare to your soul. Don't keep around pictures of other men. Don't keep around anything related to another man that would take away your affection from me. I'm a jealous God. And so we read, beginning here in Exodus 34, all the way through the Old Testament, over and over, his warnings about his jealousy and what he calls it when they leave him to serve or love anything else He says it in verse 16, go a-whoring after their gods. And if you were to look up the word whoring and whoredom and whoredoms and harlot 
and harlots and whores. It's all through the Old Testament describing most of all, most of all, spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery of loving someone other than the Lord and loving something other than the Lord, neglecting his worship, bringing inventions into his worship, all of which becomes spiritual adultery in his way of looking at it. Judges chapter 2. doesn't matter where you turn. They're all through the Old Testament. But let's just look at a couple more. Judges chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read verse 16. Judges 2, 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. God delivered his people over and over again in the book of Judges. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. One generation would be good and serve the Lord. The next generation would be evil and go whoring after other religion. Next gen because he'd punish them, the next generation would be good. On and on. Remember Gideon on Wednesday night? Gideon took all the gold from those Midianites and made that golden ephod. And what did it say? All Israel went a-whoring after that golden ephod in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Look at Hosea chapter 1. There's three books that are committed to this theme more than all the others. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. Those three books are three prophets warning Israel about coming judgment, and they deal extensively with this theme of the adultery of Israel. <coughs> Verse 1 of Hosea 1. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea. Here's one of God's ministers. The son of Beri in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms. For the Lord hath committed, for the land hath committed great whoredoms departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, which conceived and bare him a son. Now that's a pretty good object lesson, wouldn't you say? When the prophet of God goes and marries a harlot, an adulterous woman, and has a child by her to make a point to Israel. But that's what he did. And, and throughout the Bible, we have this constant warning that when we leave the Lord, we are committing adultery against him. Right. Now, we read back there in Exodus 34 that God is jealous. And I hope that you know that about the Lord without me reading any of another 30 passages to you about how jealous he is. And his jealousy will burn in his anger against his people when they forsake him. Now there's still underlying, when he burns in his, remember in Psalm 106 that we read this morning, it said he abhorred his inheritance? Yes. But did he still have an underlying covenant of love with them? Yeah, yeah. But in a practical way, he turned to abhor them by selling them off to their enemies. Yeah. And yet underneath was still that everlasting covenant, and all they had to do was confess their sins, right. and they would be forgiven practically. Yeah. Don't forget that when I say that he burns in his jealousy toward his people, and abhors them because that's what it means. It's limited to a practical sense. Not eternal, not legal, not vital, because those things are certain and sure as part of his covenant. But the practical part is dependent on us as well as him. Right. I'm not going to turn you to all of those. He has a right to be jealous, don't you think? Amen. Does the Lord God have a right to be jealous? Yeah, right. Consider who he is and consider what we are. Right. Consider that he loved us Consider all that he's done for us because of his love for us and consider what he's promised us to give us in the future and consider that he hasn't loved others like he's loved us. I speak of us as the elect. Does he have a right to be jealous when we ignore all of that and chase something else? Yes. This is the most one-sided relationship in the universe. Do you love him like it's the most one-sided relationship in the universe? He will not share his glory with any other, for he knows that he alone is worthy of all of our glory. He wants all of our praise and all of our excitement, like a wife to a husband, 
because he is that kind of husband to us. Someone will say, and I haven't turned you to all the passages in the Old Testament, but will you trust me that there's many, many, many passages about the jealousy of God and his jealousy burning against his people when they're unfaithful to him? Is that just the Old Testament or is that taught in the New Testament as well? Amen. Hebrews 12:28 says words that you know quite well. <laughs> Hebrews 12:28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We have a kingdom that has been given to us by our king and our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we better take the grace that he has given us and serve him as a wife, as a bride, acceptably, with reverence, just like we expect from our wives, with reverence and godly fear. And what does it tack on to the end of that sentence? For our God is a consuming fire. And do you know where that comes from? Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it's describing the jealousy of God and the consuming fire that his jealousy is. The first commandment that God gave his people, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does a husband want that of his wife? Yep. Does God want that out of us? Right. Has your heart been pulled away any this past week to love other things? You, you must answer that. Right. I've already told you this morning that he made his espousal to us in a practical way when he comes to us in the gospel. You know, when men hear the gospel that are born again, they respond like they did in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 when they said to Peter and the other apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer was to be baptized, to repent and be baptized, because that's how we give the answer of a good conscience back to God. And once we're committed to him, when we turn from him, if we, if we turn away from him, it's just like a wife turning away from her husband. The Lord Jehovah created us, didn't he? Right. Do we owe him all that we have? Amen. What husband in here created his wife? Did the Lord Jehovah buy us? Yes. He didn't buy us from some slave market. He didn't buy us with some little dowry. He bought us with his own precious blood from the justice and condemnation of Almighty God. Right. Anyone in here done that for their wives? No. Then why do you expect your wife to be faithful to you? Why do you expect your wife to love you? Because you're nothing as a husband in comparison to what the Lord is to us. And are we loving the Lord with the kind of zeal that we ought to because of what he's done for us? In Revelation 14, we see 144,000 virgins. 144,000 virgins and everyone gets excited because now we've got the 144,000 and I want to know how I can be part of the 144,000. See, the Jehovah's Witnesses want to do that because they limit the inner circle of heaven to the 144,000. But we don't go into the book of Revelation looking at all these numbers as something literal, but as a sign from heaven that the 12 tribes of the Old Testament times the 12 apostles of the New Testament making up the perfect number of 144. That is 12 times 12, isn't it? 12 times 12, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is a picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're called virgins because they have not been defiled with women. Those saints that are around the Lord Jesus Christ have not been defiled with women. Does that mean that they're all priests of Rome who didn't have wives? Does that mean that they're men who took the vow of celibacy and never had a wife? Or are we still working under a sign in the book of signs called the book of Revelation? They have been faithful to their husband. They have been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the faithfulness of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to go into Revelation and get specific and literal with all the terms there, but all it is is a picture of those who have been faithful before Jesus Christ. Listen to this further description of them. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. That's not women like these women that are sitting in our assembly this morning. This is spiritual adultery. They've been faithful to the Lord Jesus. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the first saints redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the constant use of language to describe faithfulness to a husband. 
faithfulness, not being defiled with women, not being led away with either thoughts or actions toward another. Does Jesus Christ care when a church loses its first love? Do you know what that flows from? We are his body. He has given himself for us. We have a covenant of marriage. And he expects us to love him like we did in the beginning. Does the Lord Jesus Christ care when a church becomes lukewarm in their service toward him? Yes, he cares. Does a husband care when his wife's service becomes lukewarm toward him? Do I need you men to raise your hands? Or do we all understand that? How much it hurts when our wives lose that first love and the zeal they once had. Oh, they sure were eager before we got married, weren't they? Why aren't they as eager now? Because they're sinners like the rest of us. But brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is offended when we lose first love. He's offended when we get lukewarm, when we drag into an assembly, when we mumble the words instead of singing the words. And on and on it goes. The Lord Jesus Christ is offended and he is justified in being offended. Look at Ezekiel 6 with me quickly. Ezekiel chapter 6. I want you to see that the Lord God, in describing spiritual adultery, will use terms to get his point point across to us that are very unusual. Can we give God a broken heart? Why would he use that expression? To get our attention as to how serious it is when we, tr- when we stray from him. Look at Ezekiel 6, 9. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whither they shall be carried captives, because I am broken with their whorish heart. Notice what the Lord God says. This is Jehovah. He is broken with their whorish heart. It hurts him to see the affection of the heart of his people looking elsewhere in their hearts. I am broken, which hath departed from me and with their eyes. Do you know how personal these verses are? This is a husband watching his wife in public. He's he's going someplace where in the conflux of people, there's going to be an enemy of his. And he sees his wife's eyes checking out this other person. Are all you men with me? This is the word of God. Does that get your attention or not? And he knows their heart is not after him. Her heart has departed from him and is after someone else. It's all right in this one verse. I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go after their idols, and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. This is what the Lord thinks of it. And I can multiply this passage over and over and over again, and, and it's, it's up to us to think of husbands knowing that their wives' heart has left them as with someone else, and then watching what are supposed to be the windows of the soul looking after another man instead of the husband. Do you know how painful that would be? And the Lord God said it broke him. But he wins us back, doesn't he? He first pounds us. He first pounds us, and then he pleads with us. And if we'll come back, he forgives us. And it's wonderful. Uh, look Look at 16 on this same thought about his broken heart. Ezekiel 16. That is language for you and me. My Lord Jehovah doesn't have a broken heart. But he will write things like this, just like it says, He shelters us under his wings, and my Lord Jehovah does not flap wings like a bird. But he uses expressions like that for us to get a very real picture in our minds. Ezekiel 16, 49. uh, 43, 43. Because thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, because Israel did not remember when she was that little naked baby in its own blood in in the middle of a field, she forgot that. Would we forget that we were sinners, and if it wasn't for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are lost without hope. We forget. Because thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, but hast fretted me in all these things. A husband who cannot trust his wife is constantly fretting. Look at the language. I'm, I'm fretting because of you, because everywhere I go, if I leave you for the least little bit, your mind and your heart's wandering after someone else. 
Thou hast fretted me in all these things. Behold, therefore, I also will recompense thy way upon thine head. Look at 23.35. Ezekiel 23.35. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, 23.35, Because thou hast forgotten me, and cast me behind thy back, therefore bear thou also thy lewdness and thy whoredoms. Here God is saying, you have forgotten me and just thrown me behind your back like I'm something worthless. Oh, and the Lord comes after his people in so many different passages and pleads with them to come back to him. Look at, look at Hosea 13. You've got the book of Daniel and the book of Hosea. Hosea 13. When he sees his people setting their affection on other lovers, look at what he says to them. Hebrews 13, 5. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. According to their pasture, so were they filled. This is God's blessing on Israel. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beasts shall tear them. Here is the Lord expostulating with, that's rebuking and reproving his wife for what she's done. I blessed you. You forgot me. I'm going to have to punish you. And over and over, you, people often wonder, what are all these prophets over here for? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Hosea, and the rest of the minor prophets, what are they for? The number one message is, you have played the whore by breaking the covenant that we had and I've had to punish you, come back to me, and I'll forgive you. That's how the Lord deals with his people. And how wicked he makes them to appear. Look at Ezekiel 16 and verse 30. Ezekiel 16 and verse 30. Here's the Lord getting right down and pointing out the wickedness of their hearts. Women have been pushed in many situations to be prostitutes to make money. Still wicked, still ungodly, but at least they were getting paid for what they were doing, and many of them needed to do that. But watch this. This is the Lord appealing to that fact that I just said to you. Ezekiel 16:30. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious whorish woman, in that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way, and makest thine high place in every street, and hast not been as an harlot, in that thou scornest hire. You have not been like an average prostitute, because you scorn hire. You don't care that you get anything out of your false worship of other gods. Do you realize, what did they get by building an idol in a street? What did Israel get? Did that, did that idol help them? Did it defend them from their enemies? Did it bring them better crops? Did it help their children? Did it, get, did it help their health? He says, here you are. You're, you're committing adultery against me spiritually. You're not getting anything in return. You've got a very weak heart. Your heart is incredibly perverse. It's an imperious, whorish woman. In verse 30, he said. Look at verse 32. But you're like a wife that committeth adultery which taketh strangers instead of her husband. You're not like a harlot. A harlot at least is doing it for money. You have no basis for what you're doing in sinning against me. They give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers and hirest them that they may come unto thee on every side for thy whoredom. And the contrary is in thee from other women in thy whoredoms. Whereas none followeth thee to commit whoredoms, and in that thou givest a reward, and no reward is given unto thee, therefore thou art contrary. That's right. Do you follow all that? Amen. This is the word of God. This is the Lord wanting to get right down and say, do you know how wicked it is when you get excited about the world? What can the world do for you? Nothing. What do we give the world? The blessings that he's given us. What did they sacrifice to these idols in Israel's time but the very wealth that God had given them. They were paying the idols and giving their stuff to the idols and getting nothing in return. They were worse than a harlot because at least a harlot gets paid for what she does. 
And a harlot is pursued by men, but God is saying, you're not pursued by these other religions. You're pursuing them and giving away everything you've got. You're contrary. Your heart is incredible. You're an imperious, whorish woman. This is the Lord. I come as his ambassador this morning, and it's time to end for this morning. But brethren, there's so much that can be said. This is the theme of the Bible. I am the Lord thy God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy might, strength, and everything else you've got. He will not accept losing our first love. He will not accept lukewarm service. And so what we want to do today is we want to be thankful for the God that saw that it was the time of love, put his skirt over us, and saved us, called us out of this world, made an espousal to us in the gospel. We responded to it in baptism. Are we living up to our marriage covenant? The consummation's coming. You've only tasted of heaven's joys. The consummation is coming. Are you living worthy of the husband that has sought you, loved you, bought you, and is married to you, and who is coming for you? May the Lord bless us this day to renew our vows to him and to tremble before him who can come in fury and jealousy and punish us for having neglected his worship and for having neglected him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.